Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, conversations with the diabetes care team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. If you enjoy The Huddle, please take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I'm Kirsten Yale, Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Today, we're discussing the impact of cost in diabetes care and its effect throughout the lifespan. Joining us to discuss the latest research are Michelle Lichman and Julia Blanchett. Dr. Lichman is a researcher, diabetes care and education specialist, and assistant professor at the College of Nursing at the University of Utah. Dr. Blanchett is a researcher, registered nurse, and diabetes care and education specialist. She was recently awarded the ADCES Foundation and CBDCE Mentored Postdoctoral Fellowship in Integrated Diabetes Management at the University of Utah. Julia and Michelle, welcome to the huddle. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. We are so happy to have you guys, especially since we're talking about what's actually a pretty big idea, which is the cost of diabetes. And, you know, I know we've been hearing in the news lately about the cost of insulin and it's finally being addressed, but I know by my work with you guys and talking with you guys that really that's just the tip of the iceberg for this issue. So I'm really excited to have you on to really talk through this, which might be um, stressors and barriers and how to address these things. But Before we jump into all that, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about you and why you decided to really research this topic. Sure, I can start. My name is Michelle Wichman. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Utah College of Nursing, and I work as a nurse practitioner at the Utah Diabetes and Endocrinology Center. And one of the things that really brought me to this topic is really patient care. So as I've been taking care of patients, I have seen some of the struggles that individuals experience. We've had to do patient assistance. We've had to look at more affordable options. But I can say that some of the research that I've done has focused in online communities. And one of the things that I started to notice was some of the chatter around some individuals not being able to afford their medications. And when this happens, some of the responses that people get is um, there might be others who are willing to volunteer and donate. And so Based on this chatter and then simultaneously, a patient came to me and had recently purchased a garbage bag full of diabetes supplies, um, had met someone at a gas station parking lot and was curious if they should be using those supplies. And one of the things that was interesting is they too met an online person. It was through an online classified ad. And so all of this together, um, I just thought there's something to this. We've got to explore it. And so decided to start researching this with a great team. And so I actually happened to meet Michelle through one of the research studies where she was recruiting online. And I reached out to her through Twitter, actually. And that's how we first connected and started collaborating on research. And so 
My name is Julia Blanchett. I'm the ADCES and CBDCE postdoctoral fellow in integrated diabetes management at the University of Utah College of Nursing with Michelle. And I'm also a diabetes care and education specialist and registered nurse. And so I was working as a diabetes care and education specialist at a community hospital that served a lot of people with diabetes who are self-pay and uninsured. And I started to realize how many people kept cycling back into the hospital due to inability to afford their insulin specifically. And then simultaneously, I was a young adult living with type 1 diabetes, and I was on my parents' insurance plan, and the plan was switched to a high deductible plan without me understanding what that meant. And so when I went to go pick up my insulin a few Januarys ago, the pharmacist was actually afraid that something was wrong because the total cost was over $1,000. And this was just for my month supply of insulin. So, you know, we tried to apply coupons, we called insurance, and I was pretty shocked and not prepared to pay. Um, so I actually left the pharmacy at that time empty handed without my insulin that I needed, and I had to figure out a solution. And so since then, I've learned a lot from members of the diabetes community through online spaces and through some nonprofits like T1D International about the problem and how it's affecting people and how to advocate for access to insulin. And then that kind of tied into my research, which I'll get into in a little bit. You know, well, one of the things I love about both of you guys and, and many diabetes care and education specialists is that your ability to listen. And I love you. I mean, you've taught me so much about these online communities that has to have influenced your research and how you've taken your research and the direction you've gone. Could you share a little bit about that with our listeners? Sure. Happy to. So one of the things that we did was we wanted to really better understand what was going on. This chatter that I had talked about regarding this trading that might be happening and the fact that a patient had engaged in such activity, we put together a cross-sectional survey where we were really asking people whether or not they had engaged in donating, trading, purchasing, or borrowing activity due to inability to afford a diabetes medication or supply. And what we found is that over half of individuals who took the survey actually had engaged in some sort of activity like that. And though this was happening among friends and family and coworkers, it was most often occurring with online strangers. And one of the things that we found also was that diabetes-specific financial distress actually predicted whether or not someone would engage in these activities. I think one of the things that qualitatively, it's really important to kind of get the richness to the data. And so qualitatively, we tried to better understand what was going on. And one of the things that people described was this death or debt situation. People did not want to die and they did not want to go into debt. And so they were really crowdsourcing solutions to see how could they survive and not go into so much debt. And this was one option that they explored. One of the interesting things is that also there was a community to support. So other people living with diabetes, they really wanted to be able to support someone who also had diabetes like them, make sure that they didn't suffer in any way where they, you know, either financially or physically or mentally. And so it was this kind of nice community camaraderie that we saw. I think from an ethical standpoint as a healthcare provider, it can be daunting to learn that a person that you care for, a person with diabetes, is maybe receiving diabetes medications or supplies 
through these what we call underground exchanges. But I think it's really important to know that a lot of people living with diabetes call these life exchanges. They need them to live because the current system is not set up for them to be successful to be able to afford and access the medications and supplies they need. So we definitely need policy changes to support that. And, and there have been some, but we definitely need more. Yeah. And switching gears a little bit. So while Michelle was doing that research, I was working on my PhD in nursing science and my dissertation focused on the financial and psychosocial barriers to type 1 diabetes self-management during emerging adulthood. And a lot of this was driven not only by my personal experience, but because I wanted to learn more about what resources were available for emerging adults with type 1 diabetes to use in practice to help others and to figure out what's really going on with financial stress since there's a lot of other factors during that life transition besides just your medical care that may impact your financial stability. Like you might still be a student, you might be transitioning to your first job for the first time, you might lose a lot of financial support from your parents. So trying to just understand all of those factors. And um, another thing that was striking is many haven't been as fortunate as me where um, I've heard quite a few stories in the diabetes space where people have actually passed away due to the inability to afford insulin. And a lot of these stories I kept hearing were from the young adult age group. So I really wanted to do something about it. So I dove into the scientific literature and there was really not a lot about financial stress and type 1 diabetes at all, to my surprise. So that's kind of when my dissertation took a turn from just understanding the psychosocial barriers during emerging adulthood um, with type 1 diabetes to actually the psychosocial barriers and understanding how the financial barriers and stressors actually impact self-management outcomes as well during that time. So I ended up collaborating with the Type 1 Diabetes Exchange for recruitment. I'm so thankful that they helped me out because I had 500 emerging adults in my study. We had complete data on 413, so that's what the analysis is on. And we found that higher levels of financial stress and higher levels of diabetes stress did have negative impacts on glycemic outcomes and quality of life outcomes. So um, these findings have since been published in pediatric diabetes. So financial stress in this age group in particular is prevalent. It's a problem. And I've since moved into some postdoc work to come up with some solutions for the problem. So another thing I've done during my postdoc is I've worked with Michelle on an analysis of GoFundMe campaigns for insulin costs in the United States. So I think Michelle's going to go a little more into that next. Happy to. So GoFundMe is a place where people can crowdsource funds for different things. And we've seen that for, you know, someone might be starting a new invention. Somebody might be, you know, wanting to fund a camp of some sort. But what we are seeing more lately is that people are wanting to fund healthcare. And one of the things that we did is we specifically explored GoFundMe campaigns for insulin. And while we realized that there's lots of campaigns for maybe insulin pumps or continuous glucose monitors, we focused solely on insulin because that is definitely necessary for survival. And so we looked at all types of insulin, all the different brands, even the misspellings of the different types of insulins. And we found that of all of the campaigns that we explored, there were 205. And what we found is that people were more likely to have their campaign fully funded if they were requesting less than $500. And to put this into context, sometimes a prescription for just a vial of insulin can be well over $300. And so it, it's not providing a lot of coverage. The other thing that we saw is that 
campaign success actually was tied to what we call viral measures. So if somebody had shared it, um, put a heart on it, which is something that's um, part of GoFundMe, and or if they've shared it through Twitter or Facebook. And so that was definitely associated with something that was more likely to be funded, which requires you to have a social network and not just a social network, but a social network with money. And so there's definitely some issues related to that because not everybody has a social network who can provide someone um, with money. Some of the things that we also found is that really these campaigns were developed because people desired self-management. They wanted to take care of themselves. They wanted to survive, but that diabetes management was just not, it was untenable given insulin access. And I think one of the things that also was happening is that people really didn't want to be putting their medical story, their life story on GoFundMe, but they felt like they had to so that they could actually get the funds that they needed. And so there's some privacy issues here because people talked about not wanting to do it for themselves. But one other thing that was happening is people were also starting campaigns for other people, like a friend or a family member. And so there are campaigns out there that exist that the person with diabetes actually potentially didn't consent to. And so there are some privacy issues related to this as well. Well, you are both pretty amazing at taking these qualitative stories, qualitative studies, and turning them into data or something quantitative that we can do something about, which, you know, there's not many people out there that can do that. So I love that you guys are here and I love the work you're doing. And just so you know, like for our listeners, we're always going to have all the resources in our show notes. So throughout, as you talk about things, don't worry about it. We'll make sure that our, our listeners have access to those. Um, I would like to just take a little bit of a turn here because you've talked a lot about financial stress throughout your research. And I'm not sure that our listeners or, you know, the general public really understands what financial stress is. And I'm wondering if you could share, you know, just some of your thoughts on a general description of what financial stress is. Studies have consistently shown that 20 to 30% of medications are never filled and approximately 50% of medications for chronic conditions such as diabetes are not taken as prescribed. The cost of pills, especially in the diabetes space, are really increasing. And because of that, medications are always on tier one. They might be tier two or tier three. And then one other important thing related to insulin is that one in four individuals ration insulin. And this is really in higher proportion with specific age groups, such as younger age. It's really important to consider that it's not just pills and it's not just insulin, but it is also the other things that go along with diabetes management, and that's glucose strips. It's also continuous glucose monitoring and insulin pumps for some. And then added to that is ways to eat healthy and also ways to stay physically active that might include a gym membership. And so all of these add up on a monthly basis. It's expensive. I mean, just, just listening to that as a layperson, I can tell you it's expensive. I would love to hear now from Julia. I know your dissertation is focused on this. Your fellowship work is focused on this. Like who is affected by financial stress and really how does that change throughout the whole lifespan? Yeah. So financial stress can be common in people without diabetes. It's pretty common in people with chronic conditions in general, but it's this condition that's um, a result of financial or even, even health insurance related events that create this chronic sense of worry and anxiety. And it can really take a toll on physical and psychological health, just like general stress. So anyone who's at a heightened or an increased risk of stress or any financial barriers may be particularly vulnerable to experiencing this financial stress. And so age group wise, when you're in a age group like emerging adulthood, I kind of mentioned this before, but 
there's all these new financial responsibilities and life responsibilities in general that pop up and you kind of have to figure out how to balance everything, but you also have to take into account diabetes and the cost that diabetes is and how you're going to cover that. But a lot of these emerging adults don't yet have the knowledge or the thinking skills to even figure that out. So um, as part of my dissertation, I actually did some qualitative research in addition to the research that I talked about earlier with the um, A1C and quality of life outcomes. And I actually found that over 40% of emerging adults have either rationed insulin or diabetes supplies due to barriers with refilling or costs. And that over a third have actually rationed carbohydrates specifically due to insulin pricing to keep their insulin usage down. So emerging adults are one of these populations that really um, have difficulty adjusting to their life responsibilities. They're trying to figure everything out still, and it can be really overwhelming at times. And that's when they'd be at that heightened risk of financial stress. I'd like to add that financial stress can also affect a different transition age group, which is someone who's transitioning to older adulthood, someone who is switching their insurance to Medicare. There's a lot of different challenges related to having Medicare. The costs of medications are different. And there's something called the Medicare donut hole. It's a coverage gap that can happen where individuals are then having to put out extra funds during a certain time period. And expensive medications, such as those given for diabetes, can really put someone into that donut hole or that coverage gap much sooner. I've seen people go in as early as May or June. And so then they're spending half of the year trying to figure out, well, how do I take care of myself? And so this is really an issue that's affecting different age groups for different reasons, but we definitely need to be working to address this across the lifespan. Something that I wanted to add that I didn't actually bring in before with the emerging adulthood is anytime you're at risk of changing health insurance, or changing jobs or a lapse in health insurance or a lapse in uh, job security. Those are all times when one can be more vulnerable to financial stress and it can really impact diabetes outcomes. So it really does affect the young adults, but it also affects that Medicare group too. We're seeing that people transition out of their jobs more often than they used to decades ago. It used to be that you had one job and you were there for, for decades, 20, 30, 40 years. Now we're seeing people change more often. And so those lapses in care that Julia just spoke about are occurring more often across adulthood. What about the caregivers or the family? Because it's, you know, diabetes is, doesn't just affect the individual, right? I mean, it really affects the whole family system. Some of the research that we have done indicates that spouses, even extended family members, siblings, parents, and also the children, the siblings of the unaffected person with diabetes all of the individuals are affected in some way or another. People talk about not being able to go on vacation. They talk about not being able to do extracurricular activities. Sometimes um, individuals are asking their own parents for extra money. And what it does is it puts a financial burden on other members of the family as well. And so then there's also this guilt that people experience because they're asking for money and it's ongoing. It doesn't let up because diabetes is ongoing. And so there's a lot of concern about always being a, a financial burden on someone. Well, and I think that phenomenon really exists too, as one is learning to become an adult. Um, like I've had, I've worked with people with diabetes who are in their mid thirties that really feel that guilt because they still haven't been able to independently transition to their own financial responsibilities because of managing their diabetes and the costs. Well, then I think about the kids who might not fully understand the financial situation. They just know that they can't do soccer anymore or they can't get new cleats because there's no money to pay for them. And so 
it's really affecting all the family members, all the age groups. And how do you guys think the pandemic has impacted this? Has it made it worse? Or Yeah, so I'll start with a positive note. So on a positive note, uh, a lot of resources have been expanded specific to the pandemic. Like um, some of the diabetes, um, like insulin pump programs have had programs you can apply to to cover your supplies if you're in a situation from the pandemic where you need that, whereas those types of resources didn't necessarily exist before, and some of the medication companies have done the same. But the biggest issue, so now not the bright side, is that the pandemic has really affected the job market and people's access to healthcare. So there's been a lot of layoffs. A lot of people have lost health insurance. And then going back and taking a new job, even when you get a new job, sometimes you have to wait like 30 days to even three months to actually use your health insurance. So it's pretty complicated, right? So anytime you lose a job or start a new one, you're in a situation where your health insurance is disrupted and that can then disrupt your diabetes care. And that's the issue right now. So just listening to you, Julia, talk through the pandemic and how it's impacted people. I know there's been policies that have put into place, especially around housing. How has that impacted people with diabetes who might be at risk? So that's actually another benefit is that some of these people have worried about their living costs and their housing costs for years um, as they've tried to pay for their diabetes needs. So the one, another benefit of the pandemic is that they can no longer get kicked out due to not paying rent. And so that can actually be a little bit of a relief in some situations. Um, also, I know some of the utility companies have not been cutting people off as well. And that could be another potential benefit right now for people that may have always had stress about that. What is the role of the diabetes care and education specialists in helping people um, manage financial stress, um, deal with these barriers? And it honestly sounds like a lot. What has it felt like for you guys in your practice? For me, one of the things that I have been putting on the forefront is, can you afford your diabetes medications and supplies that are being prescribed? I think that that's a question that I ask very routinely now. And I'm fortunate that at the University of Utah, we're set up to have a patient assistance program. We have pharmacists that are supporting this program. And so we can refer, but the reality is, Though we can help a lot of people through setting them up through those patient assistance programs, it doesn't help every single person. There are people who fall through the cracks. And so when you are in that situation, then you have to reassess potentially different medications that might also work, that might be at a lower cost. So you have to reassess the entire situation. There have been times when I have, you just talked about housing, and there have been times where I've looked at not just the diabetes expenses, but other expenses as well, trying to figure out, is there a way to reduce other expenses so that someone could be able to put more funds towards their diabetes needs? And so it's really kind of a holistic approach that you need to take when exploring the cost of diabetes for somebody. Yeah, I agree. It hurts to not be able to solve all the problems, but the beauty of being a diabetes care and education specialist is that we help people with diabetes problem solve, right? So I think it's one of the problems that I always assess for as well, because I know how many people may experience um, these financial stressors and not everyone may think about it or want to tell you about it. And so I think asking about it is something that's really important, but we can also help people kind of work through their problems and tie them to any resources we know exist. You know, so we can't solve the whole problem, but we can help people problem solve, which is what we're good at doing. So what is the responsibility of the diabetes 
care and education specialists specifically from your perspective? So we know from a therapeutic inertia standpoint, the system, the healthcare system, the provider, and in this case, the diabetes care and education specialist and the patient all have a role related to therapeutic inertia. And something that the DCS can do is really look at those three levels of potential barriers to see how they can address them. So at the system level, do you have someone in place that can actually support patient assistance programming? Is somebody trained? Are they willing to do it? Are they willing to go to bat for the patient? As the diabetes care and education specialist, the provider in the situation, do you know all of the resources locally that are available? Do you know all of the different patient assistance programs? Are there other programs that exist? Some states have medication recycle programs, and so there may be one available in your state you need to look. And at the patient level, really helping to understand some of the patient barriers that exist. So some of these might be that they just need a little bit of extra coverage because they don't get insurance for a few more months, as Julia mentioned earlier. They might be in need of a job and they need to explore specific jobs that might have insurance. Well, I actually know local jobs in my area that provide great insurance for people with diabetes. So knowing those jobs as well can be helpful and jobs at all levels. So somebody who might have a high school education, a job that they could maybe have, a job that might be for somebody who has a different level of education. Having those at your ready can be really helpful when talking to patients so that you can try to help them overcome their barriers as well. You know, listening to you guys, I think what I'm going to walk away with today is that it's a big systemic problem, right? So these barriers that you're, you're kind of leaving us with the system to the DCES, to the patient, like how do we solve this big systemic problem? And uh, we only have a couple minutes left, so we're not going to solve it in this last couple minutes. But what I could ask you is, what would be your calls to action? Like, what could you ask, or maybe some tips you could give to diabetes care and education specialists where they could sort of like chipping away at the systemic problem? I mentioned earlier, I always ask, do you ever have a hard time getting what you need? So that could be a diabetes medication, it could be a supply. So really asking that question and ask it at every visit so you normalize it. It's not that you're asking one time or another, but you're just asking it routinely. And people will get used to you asking and hopefully if they really need help, they'll reach out. Yeah. And then the next thing that's really important is identifying your local or even, you know, nationally available resources to be able to give out in those situations. And then finally, looking at all of the barriers someone might have, I think that it's not just accessing sometimes financially the medications and supplies. It might also be accessing you as a, as a diabetes care and education specialist. There might be a copay to see you. And so is there a way to address that where they can still get the care that they need without having all of this financial stress be exacerbated by extra copays and other finances? So maybe would you guys say have a game plan? And I'm thinking about that because it's football season, right? So maybe have a game plan. So ask, identify, and you guys have great resources too, which we are going to list in the footnotes. So Michelle and Julia, thank you so much for coming on and chatting and sharing your expertise. I always love talking with you guys. And I'm just so pleased that, you know, you could share this with our listeners too. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today we heard from doctors Michelle Lichman and Julia Blanchett on the cost of diabetes and its impact across life stages. Diabetes care and education specialists can help navigate the struggles many people face to afford their insulin and other medications, 
while addressing the social determinants of health that also impact care. By listening and connecting patients with resources, we can help to support the overall health of the individual. You can access additional resources to help patients afford their medications and insulin in the show notes or visit diabeteseducator.org forward slash affordability. Membership at ADCES gives you access to the education, networking, and resources to improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients. Find out what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org forward slash join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.